Today's meeting is Acts 25.13 to 26.32. And the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all of our present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send a prisoner onto Rome without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I, might, as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way, I, the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope and what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is, by some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so 
So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. The Messiah would suffer and, as the first to rise from the dead, would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it, is not, it was not done in the corner of King Agrippa. Do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. The group said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Um, my name is Josh. I am um, one of the leaders here, work for Christchurch Liverpool as well. Keep that passage open, I'm going to talk to you about it for a little while. So my phone rings and um, it says, Unknown Caller. What do you think when your phone says Unknown Caller? What does your mind first go to? If you're anything like me, I'm just thinking, this is a spam call. I don't know who this is, this is a sales call. Someone's going to try and get money from me, they're going to try and sell me something that I don't really want. But it's unknown, so it could be anything. So just in case, you have to answer it. Well, I answer my phone. And sure enough, it is somebody who wants to sell me something. And so before I can even get a word in, they come up with this sales spiel. They're saying, oh, we'd like to offer you compensation for the uh, injury that you had in an accident within the last 12 months. Um, there's a, they, they kind of explain it all, and it's all a bit complicated. They don't quite follow, and I know it's got nothing to do with me because I haven't had a, an accident in the last 12 months. But they talk about some national compensation scheme. There's a pool of £2 million that's unclaimed, and... There's, they can get me a medical certificate online right now if I just put the details in. And, and when they stop talking, I've got some questions, because it doesn't make sense to me. And when I ask the questions, they say, oh, well, you wouldn't be able to figure this out. You wouldn't be able to know any of this. You, of course you wouldn't know about these things, because it's only us, the solicitors, who, who know about this. Well, those phone calls only end up one way. And it's me saying, no. This, this has got nothing to do with me. I'm not interested in this. I, is this not for me? Goodbye. And call. Because I can spot straight away, I'm totally suspicious of something that doesn't seem to make sense. I'm totally suspicious of something that's not very transparent. don't exactly know who they are or, or where they're coming from. And I've got no way of finding that out. And something that's just not at all relevant to me. Something that I think, they are just trying, they're just fishing here. They're just trying to get something off me. They're not really looking out for me. Now I think the reason this part of Acts, the book that you've got open, has been included by the writer, the writer's a man called Luke. I think Luke included this particular bit because he wants people to know that the message of Christianity is not like those spam phone calls. So if you hear the message of Jesus, the message of Christianity, if you hear someone talk about Jesus or the, the hope that they have in him, then you'll know that that's not a waste of time, it's not untrue, it's not someone trying to scam you. Or, actually, the first people who ever read this book of Acts 
would be people who believe this already. But Luke is saying to them, well, actually, you can know that when you speak about Jesus, there's no reason for anyone else to think of you that what you're saying is hidden or obscure or trying to scam people. That's because if we look carefully at the things that Luke records, and we're going to do that as we go on this morning, look carefully at some of the things that Luke records about Paul describing his own story, Luke shows quite clearly that our story is transparent. Our message is reasonable and our intentions are loving. And when we get those things from this, then that's going to empower Christians to share it without fear. So the first thing that Luke is getting at in this passage is that our story is transparent. The section of today's passage that belongs in chapter 25, so the end of chapter 25, which verse 23 to 27, that's the preamble to what's going on in the context of, of this of Paul's speech. To hearing, the governor Festus is saying he's called this inquiry because he wants to know what charges to attach to Paul, because he's about to send Paul off to the high court, Caesar's court, in Rome. That's the setting from chapter 26, verse 2. Then Paul has got license to speak, and Paul speaks uh, quite a long speech in that bit. And we're going to notice that as Paul gives his speech, very interestingly, his concern isn't actually to defend himself. His present concern isn't to make himself look good. His concern is not to get himself off the hook. It, in fact, in, chapter, in verses 10 and 11, he actually confesses in court that he was part of a violent people-hunting campaign. So he's not trying to prove any innocence here. His present concern is that everyone can see the transparency and integrity of his story. So he says in verse 4, the Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child. From the beginning of my life in my own country, he goes on and says, they've known me for a long time. Nothing is hidden about his story. He goes on to say about the way he used to be, and everyone knows that. And he explains what happened to persuade him of the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection, because he saw Jesus appear to him as he was travelling on a road. Now Luke's shown a really helpful pattern here for Christians who are going to follow Paul, that when we get to talk about our faith in front of others, and especially if you're in Paul's situation where you've got to explain, somebody thinks you need to explain what you believe, so maybe um, at work, there's certain standards that people have come up with that maybe you've asked though, you've not you've asked not to have a pride flag put on your table during Pride Month. Or maybe someone's seen you give a, a Bible to a Muslim colleague. Someone's seen that and somebody has mentioned something to the manager, and the manager now calls you in and says, We need to work out what's going on here. What have you done? Why is that offensive and what's wrong with it? Well, Paul's pattern that Luke is setting up here, Paul's pattern is to say, I'm going to be transparent about my story. I'm going to be open here. I'm not going to try and defend what I'm doing. I'm just going to lay out my own story. And, and he shares a story that no one can argue with. Twice in this story, Paul mentions that what he used to do was on the authority of the chief priests um, in Jerusalem. Now, if he's mentioned that, then this is, you can fact check that. Festus <laughs> and Agrippa, who are listening, they can just call up the chief priests and fact check his story. He mentions about his vision of Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he even mentions, he mentions there are other people with him, and he even mentions what language Jesus was speaking, so that you could go and fact-check that. You can ask his travelling companions. You must have heard this too. His life is transparent. 
But his teaching is transparent too. He brings up the prophecies of the Messiah who suffered and rose from the dead in verse 26. And he says, I love this little phrase in verse, verse 26. He says, what we believe is about what happened to Jesus, but that wasn't done in a corner. It's not done in a corner. The things that Christians believe have never been made up. They're not just kind of downloaded straight from God into our hearts. We have this deep heart knowledge, but nothing really to show on the outside. Luke is giving us a good, a good grounding in how we are to understand the Christian message. He's making sure that future generations of Christians like us can always be confident that the history of Jesus has always been public knowledge. What has been known about Jesus was never in a corner. It's always been open to being fact-checked. You can always check out the stories about Jesus. And the stories of the very first Christians who were on trial and called to defend what they believe, well, their stories were completely transparent too. It leaves us in a position where we know what we believe, but we, we know where it came from. We don't believe in mystery religion. We've not got hidden beliefs that are revealed only to the chosen few. The Bible's truth is public truth. So we can have confidence about anything that we share. Whenever we share the Bible, whenever we share Jesus, whenever we share the Christian faith, we've got confidence that there's nothing sly or secret about that. We're not trying to convert people into something weird or occult. And we can put that on show. We can make that obvious. We can speak to people about Jesus as we speak about public news. And we can share our own stories too. Paul takes this opportunity to share what is incontrovertible and transparent facts about his own life. People know that what he's saying is completely true. And Christians have been doing that ever, ever since. We get the opportunity to show others that we haven't been brainwashed, we're not on the rampage to convert people. We've all got a genuine and personal story. No one can deny that. And many people around us know that story. Everyone can agree with that. We've got a story of how something has changed in us as a result of meeting Jesus in our lives. A lot of people we meet might not want to accept the testimony of the Bible, but your own story is very hard to disagree with. It's your transparent story. This transparency testifies to the integrity of the message of Jesus, and it also makes us an example of the truth of his power at work. Well, the second thing that uh, Luke is showing through this, uh, this testimony of Paul is that our message is reasonable. Our message is reasonable. Um, I don't know if you've heard the, some facts about the human body, some amazing facts we have. Did you know that 60% of the human body is water? Um, I came across a, a fact that 8.2% of our body weight is all in our head. But in fact, something else that's true is that 99.9999999% of the human body is nothing. It's nothingness. Empty space. It's true. In fact, 99.9999999% of everything is nothing. Nothingness, just empty space. Now, at this point, you might be thinking what Festus says to Paul in verse 24, oh, Josh, your great learning is driving you insane. <laughs> You're saying that this is a fact, but it can't possibly be true. You say something that sounds completely ridiculous, 
completely non-believable, and you say that actually that's completely true. Well, apparently scientists do say that everything is made up of atoms. They tell us that atoms are made up of the nucleus in the middle and an electron around the outside. <coughs> in between them is empty space. So everything we're made of is atoms. And in the atom, 99% of it is empty space. So apparently it is true. Some things that are perfectly true, people would say are insane. Sometimes people say you're insane for believing something that is perfectly true. Now Paul's story comes across very transparently. He's open, you can fact check that. But the people who hear him realise that transparency is not the same as truth. So yeah, you can check his own experience, but uh, his experience does have this weird bit that includes an encounter with Jesus. Jesus who's died. So Paul's story, maybe his own version of events, but they are thinking, well, it can't possibly be true, because this only makes sense if Jesus really did rise from the dead, and we all know people don't rise from the dead. So Paul is genuine, he's transparent, but people think this guy's gone insane. He must have had some sort of dream, a, a vision, a hallucination, because it can't possibly be true. People who believe what Paul believes are either liars or insane. But I love this. One of the highlights for, for this passage is verse 25. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Luke thinks that Christians down the centuries need to hear the echo of this statement. What I am saying, what I believe is not insane. It is true and reasonable. Now it happened to Paul that people call him insane and I'm sure, sure to have happened to you if you've ever had the chance to explain to somebody that you really do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, yeah, they'll think you're, you're weird or insane for believing that someone rose from the dead. Luke shows that the very earliest Christians experienced this disbelief. That's nothing new, so you can be encouraged by that. But Luke gives us Paul's response, I'm not insane. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And so we can be encouraged to know that when Christians to the ages have testified to Jesus dying and rising from the dead, they've actually been saying something completely true and reasonable. Not a theory, not a myth, not a legend, but rational, reasonable belief. And Paul puts it in his way, in verses 6 to 8, he points to the culture around him, the Jewish culture around him, especially those who are accusing him. And he says... We, the way we all understand the world is that we expect God to intervene. That's his own culture. We expect God to intervene at some point. We're all expecting the Messiah. We all agree on that. We all understand that when the Messiah comes, he will bring about God's endgame. He'll bring about, he'll conquer death and bring about God's eternal kingdom. That's what we all believe. So if we all believe that, then why do you think it's weird that I'm saying the Messiah has come? Why would you think it weird, verse 8, that God can raise the dead if that's what he said he was going to do? If this is what we all believe, then it's not actually weird. In fact, it'd be insane not to believe it. Christians today can speak that way too. The culture around us has many, many questions, and it's not weird that we believe the answers to them. The culture around us hates injustice with a passion. You look on the news and there's there's riots and marches if the police kill somebody unfairly. We burn with a passionate hatred towards injustice. So why would it be weird 
that we believe in a God who's the author of justice, who has set the world in such a way that's right and there's wrong. So there's such a thing as justice. It makes perfect sense. Why is it weird that we would believe in a God who also burns passionately against injustice and has a plan to judge the wicked and send them to hell? That's not weird. That's what everyone is hoping for. The culture around us aches in loneliness and thirsts and hungers for deep and intimate and safe love. So why is it weird that we believe in a Father, Son and Spirit who are bound together as love before the world began? That God is love and he created us and so we've got this aching, this longing for love that he offers to us a love stronger than death. That's not weird. That's what everyone <coughs> can agree on. That's what everyone is hoping for. We all have a sense that we're meant to belong we're meant to be accepted. We've got a sense that we want to be significant and do something meaningful with life. Well, it's not weird to believe then that we're created by a God who gives us that. We're created for a God who fulfills that longing. Everyone we meet in some way longs for what the Gospel offers. Whether that is meaning, or justice, or hope, or change, or fulfillment, or happiness. And as Paul says, it is actually perfectly reasonable to believe in what we've always hoped for. In fact, it would be insane not to. So our story is transparent and our message is reasonable. And if we just stop there, we might think that the way Luke is, showing, uh, is recording this story, to show us that our story is transparent, so go ahead and tell your story, the message is reasonable, so be confident in that. You might think that then Paul is equipping Christians in future generations to um, have uh, tools in our bag to defend Christianity and win the arguments. So I don't want us to miss the third feature that Luke brings out strongly, and that's that our intentions are loving. In verses 7 and 8, Paul turns this transparency and reasonableness into a challenge for King Agrippa. It's as if he's saying, I've got nothing to hide, and my belief is exactly what we're all hoping for. So if we all think like that, isn't it clear we should all be believing this, King Agrippa? He mentions right at the very end, you believe the prophets, I know you do. He's not defending what he believes, he's presenting it so that Agrippa can get a handle on it. Let's not forget the chapter 25, at the end of chapter 25, Paul is here on trial. And the end goal of this is to decide whether he should be sent to Caesar, and Caesar's going to decide whether he's going to live or die. It's a life or death situation for Paul. He spent two frustrating and grim years in prison. He finally gets a chance to take the stand and defend himself, and you find he's not out to prove a point. He's not trying to prove his innocence. He sees Agrippa and thinks this is a man who would benefit from hearing this. He hopes that King Agrippa might be able to put two and two together that the stories that are not done in a corner of Jesus of Nazareth and the Jewish hope of a Messiah, maybe he's going to hear this and, and it'll do something for him. The reason why Paul's thinking not of his own defence, but for Agrippa's good, is, is verses, it's, it's come from his own story, it's verses 16 to 18. He mentions in verses 16 to 18 that his story is actually part of Jesus' story. One of the things that um, makes a great TV series, or that makes a great series of books, I'm sure you've all come across this kind of thing, is when there's a whole series, and each episode is kind of self-contained, but there's an underlying 
slow burner of a major narrative that gets progressively revealed as the series goes on so that you get this big climax at the end that you've all been waiting for for ages. But each individual episode is a self-contained story. So think Harry Potter, or think the Marvel films, or take Sherlock Holmes. I'll give you a worked example. In each story of Sherlock Holmes, there's a crime that gets solved. But maybe there's one clue that still hasn't been solved. And it makes us think there's a mastermind at work. But that's not for this story. That's not even the next story. The next story, we don't come back to the mastermind. We have a new problem to solve, a new mystery, and Sherlock Holmes solves that mystery, but maybe there's another clue, and it leads back to the mastermind. And slowly, in each story, we're getting more and more clues about this Moriarty person, this secret, mysterious person, until story after story after story reveals more about that, and then after a whole series of stories, the clues paint this big picture, the climax is finally in uh, Sherlock Holmes finally locking horns with his arch nemesis Moriarty, or Harry finally gets to fight Voldemort. In each episode, there's what's immediate, there's what's in front of us, there's what we're dealing with right now, right today, but there's also a hint of a bigger picture that means so much more. If the Gospel is true, and Paul recognises this, then in each circumstance in life, we've got what's pressing, we've got the immediate story, we've got what we need to do immediately today, but behind that there's a a much more important big picture. The book of Acts begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and Luke refers to a former book, and he says that when I wrote that, I was talking about all that Jesus began to do and teach. There's a hint there that the book of Acts is all about all that Jesus continues to do and teach. And where we get lost and, and caught up in Paul's own experience and how long he was in prison and who he's standing in front of now, Agrippa and Festus, and who they are, we mustn't forget that there's a big picture that means so much more. The big picture is Jesus is continuing to do something here. And in chapter 26, verse uh, 18, Paul reveals that there's, there's five things, at least, that Jesus is doing. In verse 18, he says, Jesus is at work. What he's continuing to do every day is opening people's eyes to the truth. He's turning people from darkness to light. He's freeing people from the power of Satan. He's forgiving sins. And he's bringing people into his family and changing them to be more like him. That's Paul's bigger picture. That's what Jesus told him he's all about. And so Paul knows that he can lay out his story to Agrippa and all who are listening so that they can see the truth and know that it's insanity to ignore it. In fact, to ignore this, would be, that Paul's got the little phrase in verse 14, would be to kick against the goats. Uh, it's like a stubborn sheep, when the shepherd's trying to herd the flock, and the sheep won't move, and a goat is a, a pointy stick that you poke the sheep with, because there's only one end to this, and that is that the shepherd will get the sheep to where he wants them. And it's completely pointless to fight against the, go the goats. <coughs> Paul mentions that that's what he was doing. He was fighting against what was completely true. And I reckon, reckon he brings that up in his story so that Agrippa gets the sense that he's also maybe kicking against the goats. He's fighting against what is perfectly true. Because Paul's view is, well, Jesus is in charge. He's building his church. He's opening people's eyes to know him and rest in him for forgiveness. That's never going to change. That's what Jesus is doing. That will happen all over the world, and that cannot be stopped. So in every episode of your life, there's that immediate story, what's in front of you what you're doing in your work, 
how things are going with your family, how you're feeling, what your challenges are, or what your successes and celebrations are. But in that, there's a bigger picture behind that, that Jesus is bringing people into your life. Because he's at work, bringing people from darkness to light, opening their eyes. He'll be freeing them from Satan's power. As you interact with them, as you speak to them, Jesus is bringing people to know him, into his family, to grow more like him. So Paul thinks, and we can think too, that more important than getting out of our present difficulties is considering how we can transparently expose the truth of Jesus' life, death and resurrection to anyone who's listening. Our intention should not be that we vindicate ourselves as Christians, that we don't want to say to people, we've got a right to be here. We've got a right to wear a cross. I've got a right to have a Bible on my desk, thank you very much. And I'll take you to court if you try and stop me, just so that I can prove to you that I can be here. We're not winning arguments. Paul's intention is others-focused. God's brought me to this situation for, for, their, for their purpose. And as we interact with this person, it may bring up an unsolved clue that leads someone else to put two and two together and see that Jesus of Nazareth is a Messiah. And we can go to him for forgiveness. Lydia was a, a mum who took her child to uh, a TOTS group in the local children's centre, like a stay in bed. And <clears throat> it happened just before lunchtime. A lot of the parents would stop with their children and have a packed lunch. And every day Lydia would open the packed lunch with, with her child and um, she'd say, say great, she'd give thanks to God for it with the child. She might even encourage the child to do that as well. As the other parents noticed this, more than one of them felt that that was inappropriate, that that wasn't what you should be doing in front of other people. And so one day somebody said to her, as she was praying with her child, in front of everybody, can you just please stop doing that? There's a time and a place for that, and it's not here. You can do that at home all you like, but that's not appropriate to bring here. We don't want to come here and be seeing that in a place where you know that everyone doesn't agree with you. You know that everyone doesn't believe what you believe. Can you please stop doing that? Well, Lydia had a few options. She could have backed down. She could have said, oh, I'm really sorry. Yeah, okay, sorry. And stopped. She could have <coughs> defended herself. She could have said, actually, you know, we have laws in this country that protect this. I am allowed to do it. And if you've got a problem with that, well, go ahead and call the police, because actually, I'm allowed to do this, and it may even be that you are showing prejudice against me. So, haha, on you go. But she did the third thing, which is to have an intention for the sake of others. She realised that in that group, she was never ever going to be asked to stand in front of anybody to explain Jesus. But now that everybody had stopped and was looking at her, now that everyone was angry at her, they were listening. And this was her chance. <coughs> to share with others what she believed about Jesus. Now, she didn't go in heavy. She didn't you know, do a massive spiel, but she could share her story transparently in such a way that couldn't be argued with. She said, well, actually, you know, I've grown up with this myself, and it's been really impactful in my life. Um, this really helps me to have a confidence in a God who listens. I need something to help me get through the, the stresses of bringing up a child. And I believe that there is a God, and to know that he listens when I pray is something that I cannot express how deeply important that is to me. And I have confidence that there's a God who listens, and actually that's my deepest joy in life. 
because I haven't told you I haven't told my father. That wasn't said for her own benefits to get them off her back. That was said because she was like Paul. Paul, when he said, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, may become what I am, a believer in Jesus. Her intention was to be able to share that with others rather than to defend herself. And that's what's so attractive about Paul's speech in this passage. That's why this passage is a great one that Luke's recorded. Luke, uh, Paul must be thinking, when am I ever going to get the chance to share Jesus with the governor and the king in the same room? So he throws his legal defense out the window, and he decides he's going to confront them for their sake with how reasonable and transparent the story of Jesus is, how it all makes sense, and how it's, if you already know all of this, like Agrippa, then how it's a little bit pointless to resist. And he's got the confidence that Jesus has been working all along. Jesus is the one who sent him, and Jesus' plan is to bring people to, to have their eyes open to the truth and coming to his family as a result of hearing that. And that's Luke's call to the church today. As you and I go out to do whatever we're going to do and live openly as a Christian, the book of Acts sets the expectation that people are going to pick us up on something that we say or something that we do. The reality is that someone will be offended. And I get that that's a hard calling. I get that it's easy for me to say, as a Christian worker, I'm quite insulated from that. But I know that many of you are at the sharp end of that. There really is something that you can think of every week, every day, a decision you make in front of other people that you know people are not going to be on board with because you're a Christian. And that's going to show badly. It's not going to work with the workplace dynamic. It's going to upset the person who doesn't really like Christians being there. That's going to happen. But when that happens, because of what we've learned here, we can move from fear to boldness. We can move from being defensive to being warm-hearted. Your story is transparent. Your message is perfectly reasonable. And Jesus is working to grow his church. Today he's still working.